0: Well, very quickly, before I begin, uh, my brother, who has preached here a couple of times, has moved back down to Florida, and this morning he was actually um, preaching at a church that needed someone uh, to preach. Their pastor was not there today, and so he filled the pulpit, and, and as we talked about that today and how that went, I was thinking about the first time I ever preached at a church, and that was right here uh, at this very pulpit on a Sunday evening. And so I was kind of just this afternoon reflecting uh, over all the times that I've preached here and now I preach so much on Sunday night. And then I transitioned into preaching on Sunday mornings when Josh was gone and, and just realizing how much God has grown me through uh, really Josh allowing me to preach on Sunday nights and, and you all being here and, and enduring some less than stellar sermons. And so I'm, I'm so incredibly thankful for you all uh, and, and for our church. So, I, so thank you for that. Let me pray and we'll begin. God, we thank you so much again that, that we're here. We're gathered to worship. And, and like Josh says, there's, there's no requirement in the Bible to be here twice on one day of worship. But yet for those of us who are, it's, it's usually and almost always rewarding. God, we're thankful that we came. It was not a waste of time. And God, you are at work in our hearts to help us love Jesus more. And God, we pray that you would do that this evening, that as I preach, even on the first of the Ten Commandments, that you would be stirring our hearts to love you more, you would be stirring our affections towards you. And God, we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. We'll be in Exodus chapter 20 this evening, and, and we'll jump around just a little, but we'll be, we'll be starting in Exodus 20. We're going to look at the first three verses, and as you're turning there, most of you well, all of you really, did not know me as a young young person. And a couple of weeks ago, my parents were actually here in Fairdale visiting, <clears throat> and they came to church with us. And so I was super excited that they were here. They had never before seen what Fairdale was like, and so I was really excited that they were going to get to experience our church uh, and hear Josh preach and, and all these different things. And so some of you got the opportunity to meet them, and... uh but one of the things that happened to me as a young boy is, is I remember this one particular day. It was, it was a winter day, and, and I grew up in the Northeast, so it was cold. And my mom was trying to put a coat on me as I was heading out the, the door to get to the school bus. And this coat just wasn't cool. And I knew because I was a, you know, seven, eight-year-old, I don't remember exactly. Uh, but it just it wasn't what everyone else at school was wearing. And I knew that. And so I was telling mom, I'm not wearing this coat. This is lame, and I'm going to be made fun of. And so there's this fight going on between me and my mom. And at the time, my dad was working night shifts. And so he had been working all night long, had just gotten home, was up in the bedroom trying to go to bed, and I'm sure he hears this conversation going on between me and my mom. And so I hear dad coming down the stairs, and that's never a good thing, especially after he's trying to go to bed. And my dad simply walks over to me. He picks me up by the shirt holds me against the wall, and just says, you'll wear whatever coat your mother tells you to wear. And then he puts me down, and he turns around, and he walks right back upstairs. And I was petrified. And I wore that lame coat that mom told me to wear. And I don't remember if I got made fun of. I don't remember what happened. But the point is, my dad had the authority to lay down these rules for me. He had the authority to tell me what I was going to do and what I was not going to do. And in a similar way, we see the giving of the Ten Commandments. God, right before he gives the first and and all of the commandments, he gives this statement explaining why he has the authority to give them. If you study the, the, the history of this time period, you'll understand that when kings would give an edict or a rule or a law, they would usually begin by stating the authority on which they give that law. So they would say something like, you know, as the king of this district or of this country or, or whatever it was, I, here, I hereby give this law or this, this uh, rule. And so what we see here at the beginning of Exodus is God doing something similar. So look with me at Exodus chapter 20. We'll begin in verse 1, and we're only going to read three verses. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So in verse 3, we see the first commandment. Maybe some of us have these commandments hanging up in our home. Maybe you've got that little lawn sign that you've, you've got stuck in your yard. But the first is that we should have no other gods before him. And what we see in verse 2 is kind of like what the other kings had done is is they state the reason or the authority by which they give this law. And God kind of does that in verse 2 by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so as I thought about the Ten Commandments and the first one in particular, my mind kind of thinks, all right, let's answer two questions. First is what authority does God have to give this rule? And then also the second question is, why does God give this rule? Why does God give this law? So those are the two questions that I want us to answer tonight together. But then also after we do that, I want us to think about how the Ten Commandments and and the first one in particular, how that affects our lives, thousands of years separated from when God gave these laws. Okay, so so as we think about what authority God has to give this commandment, we see the answer really tied up in verse two. He says, I am the Lord, your God. So he is stating that he is somebody's Lord and somebody's God. So now he's giving these Ten Commandments to the Israelites, which we have to understand because he's not giving the Ten Commandments just to all the people on the earth. He's giving these Ten Commandments specifically to the Israelites. And as our our call to worship in 2 Kings told us, these are the offspring of Jacob, whom he, he renamed Israel. So this is the nation of Israel, the people that God had promised Abraham would come from his offspring. These are them. And they were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years before God delivered them. And now, after having delivered them from slavery in Egypt... He gives them rules. He gives them laws, what we know as the Ten Commandments. So these are not given to just anyone. They're given specifically to the people of Israel, who are God's chosen people. It's important that we remember that. It'll come into play here in a little bit. But what authority does God have to give these these rules and these laws? Well, in verse 2, what we see God explaining is that he has acted on behalf of his people. So the first answer to the what question, what authority does God have to give these commandments, is that he's acted on behalf of his people. We saw that he says, I delivered you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, I don't remember how long ago it was. My memory as far as how long ago things were is not great. But a while back, Josh preached through the book of Exodus, and so I remember very, very vividly Josh preaching through the plagues and preaching through uh, God delivering the people when they actually leave out of Egypt. And then they come to the Red Sea and they, they feel like they're at a dead end and the Egyptians start chasing after them. And God provides for them again and delivers them through dry land going through the sea. And so most of us, especially if we've grown up in church, we've probably heard this story. Maybe we've heard it multiple times. And so God is stating that he, has, he is the one who delivered the Israelites from slavery. Now think about that. If you're one of these Israelites, God is reminding you what he's done for you. God is reminding you that you at one time were a slave. And I don't think any of us like to be or, or like the thought of being a slave. And so God is reminding them, you once were slaves, and I delivered you from that. I rescued you from the house of Egypt, from the house of slavery. So God has clearly acted on behalf of his people. So kind of like the the illustration of my dad and me, my dad had the authority to give me rules and to say what I could do and what I could not do because multiple reasons. He brought me into this world. He's provided for me. He's cared for me. He's protected me. And so for all those reasons, he has every right to give rules and regulations that I am to follow. We all understand that as, as parents. And for you young people, your day will come. There will come a day where you will be the parent and you will have kids and you get to decide what rules your kids will and will not follow. But God has acted clearly on behalf of his people. And and as I thought about this, I kind of asked the question, well, we are now thousands of years removed from God delivering the people from, from slavery in Egypt. And many of us are probably not ethnic Jews. And so as we think about the Ten Commandments... And we think about the fact that God gave them to specific people, not just everyone on the whole face of the earth. Well, how do do they apply to us? Well, in the book of Romans, Paul explains that when God set aside the Israelites as his own people, God really was saying all those who have faith like Abraham are Abraham's offspring. Not just physical descendants of his who have his lineage. It's those who have faith like Abraham has faith. And he even says Abraham had faith and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so in the same way, for you and I who have faith in Jesus, if we have faith like Abraham had faith in God, we are his offspring. We are God's chosen people. And so as we think about what has God done for us, how has God acted on our behalf, a couple of verses came to mind. You don't have to turn there, but I want to read them for you. Second Corinthians chapter five and verse 21 says this: "For our sake, He made him Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God." So what Paul is saying to the Corinthian people is that God stood in your place. God became your sin. So that you could be his righteousness. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He himself, talking about Jesus again, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And again, just the next chapter after that, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So, as we think about the first commandment and as we think about verse 2, how God God is is saying, I have the authority to give these commands because I have acted on your behalf. We, as 21st century readers of the Bible, are sitting here and, and God has acted on our behalf as well. If you right here this this evening are believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, God has acted on your behalf. We've read about it. God sent his son Jesus to stand in your place to pay your punishment for all the sins that you have committed. And I'm included in that. And if we believe that, then we must come to the realization that God has acted on our behalf in Jesus and so while we may have not been in Egypt as slaves we were slaves to sin and God delivered us from slavery and sin and brought us into the promised land and so for us maybe we weren't there to receive the 10 commandments specifically the first but God still has authority in our lives to give us the same commands because he has acted on our behalf but secondly, the second part of the what authority does God have to give these commands is the fact that there are no other true gods. So the first reason that he gives is right here in verse 2. He is the, he, he's the Lord. He's the one who delivered them out of Egypt. But then secondly, there are no other true gods to worship. Now that was repeated in our call to worship passage. That's one of the reasons that I, I, I had that passage as our call to worship because it, it states... Three times you shall, you shall worship and serve no other gods. And one of the reasons for, for that command is because God delivered you from Egypt, He delivered you from slavery. So it's repeated. All right? So we know this is not just the, the only instance where we find that. Clearly, the other biblical writers understood that God gave this command and had the authority because He delivered His people. He had acted on their behalf. But but the second reason is that there are no other true gods for us to worship. Now, I'm not going to do an extensive study, but if you look back, right before the Exodus, there are ten plagues that God brings on the people of, of Egypt. And in those plagues, we don't see it specifically in Scripture because it doesn't mention the Egyptian gods, but we do see it. That God is basically through these plagues proving that he is better than the gods that the Egyptians worship and serve. Now look with me back at Exodus chapter 7. Just a couple pages back. And this is right before God turns the the water of the Nile into blood. And we'll look at verse 17. So um, God is speaking to Moses, telling him what what to say to Pharaoh... And in verse 17, he says, Thus says the Lord, By this you will know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall be turned into blood. So the the reason that God is bringing this plague upon the people of of Egypt is so that Pharaoh will know that he is God, that he is more powerful than the, the... The Nile God and goddess that the Egyptians worship. God is going to show that he is more powerful than they. Also, flip over just a couple pages to Exodus chapter 9. This is right before God brings the the hail. And he says again, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. So a couple times... Before the plagues, in the midst of the plagues, God is saying, I'm doing these things so that you will know that there is no other being like me. No one has the power I have. No one has the authority that I have. Isaiah picks up on this theme. And in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5, he says this, I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. Scripture makes it pretty plain and pretty clear that there is one true God. And one of the reasons why God has the authority to tell us something such as, you shall worship no other gods before me, is because there are no other gods to worship at all. True gods, that is. So God clearly has the authority to give the the Ten Commandments, and, and specifically the first one. To have no other gods before him. But then we've got to answer the why question. Why does God give this commandment? Why is the first commandment to have no other gods before him a good one? Why does God give that? Well, I think it's there's one main reason. It's because he loves us. Now, it's important that we understand when we, when we study the Ten Commandments, the order in which things happen in Exodus Because it's easy for us to come to a list of laws or a list of commandments and to think God's just making our life more difficult. God is just making uh, our life harder by giving us all these rules and these laws that we need to follow. But when you understand the, the order of events in Exodus, we begin to see that God is not giving a list of rules to make our life harder or to make it more difficult. But he's actually giving these laws because he loves his people. It's important that we understand that before God gives these laws, he delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. So God does this miraculous thing. His people are in slavery for 400 years. Do you think some of them grew weary in asking God to deliver them? Generation after generation after generation, as they prayed to God and asked that he would Deliver them from slavery? I would think the people grew a little weary. Usually when I don't get something that I'm asking for in a day or two, I'm done. I want to give up. I want to quit. And that's how most of us are. 400 years these people were in slavery. But then God acts on their behalf. He does the plagues. He leads them out of Egypt. And they're freed from slavery. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments. God does not give the Ten Commandments and say, all right, all you got to do is obey these Ten Commandments. There's only ten. It's not that hard. Come on. And then, once all of you follow those commandments, then I'll deliver you out of Egypt. How about that? That's not how God does it. God acts on behalf of his people. He delivers them from slavery in Egypt and then gives the Ten Commandments as a way of saying, now, here is how you should live here is the absolute best way for you to enjoy life. You follow these Ten Commandments, it'll help you understand me, and it'll help you enjoy life. Life will be better if we live according to these Ten Commandments. So it's important that we understand that God gives us these Ten Commandments because He loves us. Specifically the first one, to have no other gods before Him. Now, the other reason I say that this is a reason to show that he loves us is because God knows that we're created as worshipers. God knows that we, as people, are genuinely and naturally going to worship something. If we look at Romans chapter 1, you don't have to uh, turn there, but just listen to what it says. This is Romans chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now if you were to ask your unbelieving friends what they are worshiping, I'm, I'm pretty certain that they're going to tell you, I'm not worshiping anything. Especially atheists who claim that there is no God, they would not describe their life as them worshiping. But the reality of the the reality is, is that whether we believe in God or not, we worship something. We naturally ascribe glory and honor to something because we're created as as beings who we know that there's eternity. Ecclesiastes 3:11 tells us that eternity is put into the hearts of men. We know that there is something greater than this life right now. And because of that we naturally worship and God knows this. And so God knows that if we worship anything besides him as our supreme being, we're going to be disappointed. We're going to be let down. Whatever it is that we're worshiping, it will fail us. There are multiple examples that we could, we could talk about. Specifically, money. That's a big one. The New Testament talks about that. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he says, you cannot serve God and money. Also, Paul gives a warning to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. Here's just one example. It is real easy for money to become our God. Now, it's important that we understand that money is essential. All of us need money. I can't just quit my day job because I think money is evil because then our house is going to get foreclosed on and we're not going to have food for or money for groceries and a lot of bad things are going to happen. So money is essential and we understand that. But it's when our focus changes to money is a resource that is helpful to money is everything. And I need it and I must have it. You don't need to be rich to worship money. Maybe you're prioritizing work and making money over God. Maybe you think saving up and getting your savings account to a certain place is more important than you being able to be here to worship on a Sunday morning. Maybe you think making more money is more important than having time to read the Bible in the morning. You see, it doesn't... Worshiping money doesn't have to look like us just always wanting to be rich, but it has a lot to do with us showing through our actions that getting money is more important than getting God. And ultimately, if we worship something like money, it will disappoint us. But it's also important to understand that it may not disappoint us in this lifetime. You see, we often talk about the. If we worship things other than God, you know, you're going to be let down, you're going to be discouraged, you know, all that. But sometimes we see examples where that's not the case. We see people who are worshipping money and they're chasing after money their entire life and they have a real awesome successful life. But guess what? They're going to be disappointed when they stand at the judgment seat. They're going to be real disappointed in the in the God that they served. And God knows that that's the case. And God knows that our hearts are so bent towards worshiping something that he says, first and foremost, have no other gods before me. Don't let your affection and your desires and your actions be towards anything more than it is towards me. Because God knows that he is the only one that will not disappoint us, either in this life or in the life to come. Another New Testament example that I thought was really interesting was, was the things of this world often can become an idol for us. And that's a very general term, but, but in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul is, is concluding his letter, and he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Seems pretty mundane. Philemon, verses 23 and 24, says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers, also. Seems kind of mundane. But then at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to his friend Timothy, and he says this, chapter 4, verse 9. He says, Timothy, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, we don't know specifically what happened in the life of Demas, But what we do know is that he began to worship and serve something besides God. Paul says he's in love with this present world. If we're not careful, that quickly becomes us. J.D. Greer said, how can we know if we are breaking the first commandment? And he says, anytime that anything besides God has been preeminent in our thoughts, affections, or actions we have broken the first commandment. Have you ever been more excited about a sporting event than you have about God and his word? Have you ever been more excited about a new TV show or maybe a new episode of the TV show you already love than you have about God and his word? Have you ever been more excited about a new relationship that you've gotten into. And that consumes your thoughts. And your affections. And your actions. And you've loved that more than God and his word. See all of us. If we're honest. And, and if we look in deep into our hearts. We have to admit that we all. Have, have failed. Every last one of us. If we critically look at our own lives. And see if we have worshipped. Anything besides God. God. All of us have failed. All of us have fallen short. But thankfully with God, there's, there's grace. Jesus is willing to forgive us. And Jesus, thankfully, like those passages we read earlier, perfectly obeyed the first commandment. In, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus didn't come to do away with the law, but Jesus came to fulfill it, to perfectly obey the law that we are required to obey and have failed. Thankfully, Jesus obeyed where we have failed. And what Romans chapter 3 says is that when we have faith in Jesus, his righteousness becomes our righteousness it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. You see, as we look at the Ten Commandments, as we go down the list, and if we're honest, we have to admit that we've broken every single one. But we start here with the first, to have no other gods before him. And all of us sitting here this evening have failed. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. The good news is that Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He perfectly obeyed the law. He never once set his affections or his actions on anything besides God the Father. And when we believe in Jesus, God's Son, his righteousness is credited to us. So even though we've failed to obey the first commandment, to have no other gods before him, Jesus is willing to forgive us through faith in him. See, without Jesus, we have no hope of having a relationship with God because all of us have broken the commandments. But it's through Jesus that we receive grace and mercy And we can have the righteousness of Christ by faith in Him. Is your faith in Him tonight? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the Ten Commandments. God, we thank you that you gave them not just as a list of rules and regulations to make our life hard, but you gave us these laws and these commandments. Because you genuinely love your people. God, you know that we are worshipers at heart and that we will worship something. And God, you have given us guidance in that anything that we worship besides you will ultimately fail us. God, would you help us to set our hearts and our affections and our thoughts and our actions on you? God, help us to be honest with our own selves to realize when it is that we have set our affections on anything else. God, give us the strength to repent. Lord, and shower us with grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.